welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarello. Um, I'm really excited today because I have a returning guest. So Dr. Stuart Sadler is back. You may remember him from series one. He did a fantastic episode on sleep. So for those of you that may be new to him, I'm going to say, say hello and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself too. Hi there, everybody. Hi there, Tara again. Um, I'm Stuart Sadler. I'm a a clinical psychologist based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and um, I specialise in depression, anxiety, and sleep disorders and uh, the way that they all interact. Um, It's absolutely amazing to be back here talking to you. It's so lovely to have you back again. So you were on in the first series and we talked about sleep that episode has had most downloads of all other episodes that I've done. Um, and I was just saying to you earlier, wasn't I? There's something about the way that you present your knowledge, which is just really accessible and digestible for people. And off the back of that episode, we were just talking about the role of anxiety and sleep and how that would be useful to cover. But we're doing an episode on kind of you know general anxiety as well, and we'll bring in sleep as well. Let's start at the beginning, though. So I might ask a really ridiculous sounding question but just what is anxiety and how how does it show up for us how can it show up for us yeah it's a really important question though isn't it because I think that um I think that anxiety it's one of those things that people they don't always recognize that it's a problem as much as it can be yeah and um certainly anxiety it's one of those things that can come up any time and cause a lot of problems in day-to-day life. So for one person, I mean, at an extreme range, it might involve panic attacks, it might involve not being able to leave the house or socialise yeah. or function at work or even go to work, right? Um, for some people, it can be about worry about their health. For some people, it can be about a fear of getting on an aeroplane or a fear yeah. of dogs. So there's quite a wide spectrum, but I guess... If I was to conceptualise what anxiety is, I would largely say that it's about a fear of something. And I know sometimes people talk about irrational fears, but whether something's rational or irrational or not, it's still a fear. And there are still ways to deal with it either way, right? Really good point. Same techniques you can use if it's a quote-unquote irrational fear they're the same techniques that you can use when you're presenting on stage or the same techniques I've talked to like actors or or the like um, or techniques that you can just use to overcome normal everyday nerves I really like that because it's probably quite stigmatizing when people use that term irrational fear because there's almost something about well you've got permission to have a fear or you don't and and I, I actually wonder where that came from. I don't know myself. I've been around a really long time. I don't actually know the answer to that question. Who decided what's irrational or irrational? How do we decide that? So when people think about anxiety then, so off the back of the pandemic, people have been talking a lot more about emotional health and well-being and anxiety is right up there, isn't it, with things that we're talking about? Because when that first lockdown happened, 
a lot of people did feel very anxious and fearful about the future, about their current situation, and that might have been to do with work, family, had a homeschool, all a myriad of things, maybe their health and wellness as well in terms of the, the virus itself. But what happens in our brains? That would be really useful because I think one of the things about your sleep episode is your ability to break things down into nice manageable chunks. So, you know, if we are anxious about something, fearful about something, what's the yeah. kind of physiology as well as the psychology there? Yeah, well, there's quite a lot that goes on, isn't there? And I think that we have to think about it in a wider context because yeah. I think that when we develop fears, we tend to develop them because quite often we've had a bad experience with either that or something similar that we yeah. might or might not be able to remember. Um, so when something is happening for us, that obviously goes through one of our senses and you know our brain makes sense of that, but then it makes sense of that in the context of our previous experience. Yeah. So for example, if we if we got bitten by a dog many, many years ago when we were younger and then we see a dog, it doesn't even have to be the same dog, just the same colour dog or just even a dog, it activates or it can activate that threat system that says, whoa, remember what happened last yeah. time you were, you know, you got bit by a dog, you know, it's best to stay away because what we've got to remember is, well, I mean, human beings, we've been on this planet like a few million years and we've survived. The way we've survived is we've developed these survival mechanisms whose job is to help us survive. And, you know, deep down in our brain, that really primitive bit, it doesn't really care about our quality of life. It just cares about survival. Yeah. So our threat system and our amygdala, which is the emotional part of the brain, the part where when activated, that's where fear becomes active, so our amygdala and our threat system, they would quite happily have us locked in a white room with no windows or doors if it meant that we were safe. We might hate it. We might have no quality of life, but we'd still be safe. That's the important yes. bit. And the best mechanism that it can do that is to say, whoa, there's danger. I'm going to start sending down some adrenaline. I'm going to start sending down some cortisol. I'm going to make it so that Stuart avoids dogs for the rest of his life, or I'm going to make it so Stuart gets out of this situation right now. And really, those hormones, those chemicals that get released, they might increase our heart rate because yeah. there's that sense of danger. It might make us tense. It makes us sweat because our heart starts pumping faster, so our heart has to get the oxygen around our body quicker. And then circling back, our brain has to then make sense of what's going on in our body. So when our brain says, whoa, Stuart's heart's beating fast, Stuart's tense, Stuart's breathing a lot quicker than usual, there must be some danger. I'm going to send even more cortisol. I'm going to send even more adrenaline going down so that he gets out of this situation. And then we get that cycle of anxiety and that cycle of, uh, of, of, of panic sometimes. So there's quite a lot of things that go on. And all the time, our body's making sense of what's going on with our brain. Our brain's making sense of what's going on with our body. And some of this, it can be totally um, out of proportion to the genuine danger. But again, it's that idea, right? As long as we survive, our brain doesn't really care. All it cares about is survival. 
And that's a really good point, isn't it? That a lot of it is very then generalized. It's not about this right here, right now in terms of the danger. It's that let's avoid this forever. Let's just, you know, go all out. And, yeah. and we're quite often not able to recognize that, are we? Um, and as you say, that disproportionate analysis of, well, actually this situation, what is it? We don't have that ability, do we? In that moment to go, hang on a minute, does this really warrant this response? That's something you may be able to work through with a therapist or a psychologist later on. But I think it's really important for people to almost give, you know, maybe that's a bit of self-compassion there to give yourself a break sometimes that some of this stuff is going on and we don't have a lot of control. Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose what I've always been struck by, and some of your listeners might even relate to this themselves, because certainly a lot of clients have said this to me. Yeah. Um, that that they they'll say that they know it's not rational, but they still feel it. And yes, I think that's a yes. really important point, isn't it? That our thoughts and feelings are on very separate tracks. Yeah. And not just with anxiety, but with a lot of stuff. And I think that's because what we tend to forget is we don't just kind of have that one brain. We have that primitive brain, which is about survival, like that bit of the brain that we share still with lizards and animals, you know, that bit that's responsible for the basic emotions. And all that cares about is survival. But then that newer part of the brain, that cortex, the bit that allows us to have rational thoughts and allows us to think about potential and future ideas and things that might happen, which also includes things that could go wrong, which is another source of anxiety. Yes, yeah. These haven't formed together to become one brain. The newer brain has formed over the top of the older brain, and it's formed connections, which sometimes like, um, I guess, internet connections can go down sometimes (laughs) they can when you're podcasting yeah yeah exactly or you know you might type a web address in and you misspell it and you end up in a totally different place from where you ended up right and this is the thing it's a little bit like it's not like we've got one brain that's making sense of it all we've got these two brains that are trying to collaborate but sometimes getting mixed messages or misunderstanding and misinterpreting each other they don't speak the same language um the best way I like to describe it to people, um, if there are any gamers out there, is that right now our brains are running at like, you know, ZX Spectrum or Atari 2600 level, whereas society <laughs> is running at PlayStation 5 level, right? Yeah. You know, our brains are out-of-date technology for modern life. Um, there's a lot. Our threats for most people, they're not for everyone, but for most people, our threats now, it's not about not having enough food or not having shelter or or things like that. Our threats now are what will people think of me if I say yes. this? Yeah. You know, what if I don't succeed? What if I don't get this job? What if I'm not wearing nice enough clothes? What if I don't have the latest um, iPad or whatever? Absolutely. You know, our threats have changed, but our brain, it's still the same primitive brain from millions of years ago. I often use this analogy with my patients that um, it's, but you know, if you talk down the high street and a saber toothed tiger came along, it's big old fangs, are they? Teeth? <laughs> that actually you'd respond the same way as you would maybe going on stage and someone judging what you look like. That there's no difference. But then sometimes people can almost put themselves down a bit with, well, I shouldn't respond this way. It's just other people's opinions. Or, um, and I wonder whether, you know, how that adds 
to the anxiety cycle then when you're throwing in all of that self-doubt or judgment about should I be anxious other people don't seem to be you know what's that role of other people then what it how do what why do we compare ourselves to other people when it comes to things like anxiety as well yeah we, we've got this great capacity to beat ourselves up haven't we and oh, um, we have yeah it's a, it's a real shame because um you know, that same vein that we used to beat ourselves up, we can also use it to generate amazing ideas and fantastic yeah. solutions to things. And I suppose it's the other side of the coin that if we're going to be able to think about possibilities and potentials, some of those yeah. are going to be like quite critical and quite negative, especially if they touch on past experiences where we've had critical experiences what might be from our parents it might be from others it might be from genuine experiences where we have failed or we have yeah struggled. that's a good point um and i think that i often describe it as being a little bit like if we have the problem and then we add another layer to that problem by beating ourselves up about having the problem then we're just complicating it all a lot more and the other thing that's often important to remember is that, you know, no one ever felt better by beating themselves up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you Very can get worse, but no one ever felt better by beating themselves up. I think sometimes it's a story that we tell ourselves about that, though, about the function that we yeah. tell ourselves about what beating ourselves up does. For some people, they believe that, right, if I criticize myself, then I'll come up with a solution. Or if I criticize myself, then I'll stop doing it almost like a punishment. Yeah. yeah. And it makes logical sense because, you know, if we punish ourselves or if someone punishes us when we do something, we tend to be less likely to do that again. But with self-criticism, it just adds another layer to the problem rather than actually preventing it. And uh, there's a thing where I'm, I'm sure people people who do beat themselves up, and I know I used to be one of those people, people who do criticise themselves a lot, it's often worth thinking about if that was going to work, it would have probably worked by now. You know, That's you wouldn't be experiencing anxiety yeah. anymore if beating yourself up was the solution. Yeah. I wonder how many people listening now are asking themselves that question. Yeah, I just hope they're not saying, oh, God, I'm so stupid. I should have known that because, you know, it's been important. <laughs> We're creating them. more anxiety with our anxiety podcast episode. That's <laughs> such a good, because I think actually, you know, as a psychologist, when we approach treatment, obviously there's slightly different models, but um, a lot of what can make a huge impact for people, you know, to our patients is understanding what's happening. Sometimes people can be too quick to dive into strategies, but actually just taking that first step to understand, well, what is anxiety? Mm. how does it show up why yeah absolutely. respond in this way i think one of the first things that i do when working with with um you know with clients is educating them about about it because once we realize actually my brain is working properly it's doing what it's meant to do yeah Yeah. it, it takes away that whole there's something wrong with me idea yeah you know because it's this idea of Whatever it is that you're anxious about, chances are there is a genuine worry or a genuine threat behind it. And for a lot of people, you know, that threat, it it comes down to like a fear of death, doesn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. about survival. Ultimately, yeah. But nowadays, like we've touched on earlier, you know, saber-toothed tigers, they don't really 
hang around in the UK. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so we've developed a, another threat, this idea of social threat, what people yeah. will think of us. And, you know, social media gets criticised a lot. It, it can be done used for amazing things. But also as well, it's become another source for comparison and another source yeah. for, um, has, for yeah. self-criticism and beating ourselves up. And I'm um, thinking, you know, the younger generation, maybe not dinosaurs like myself, who perhaps have grown up with it and what that might be doing to younger people's brains in terms of their threat response and you know yeah. a lot of social media for some people is very caught up in how people look and using filters and all of those things but I'm just wondering you know have you seen differences in younger generation in terms absolutely of, you know, I, I do I do think that um I think I hate thinking about the younger generation because then what does it say about how old I am but um <laughs> I have noticed the, the difference, <laughs> and I have noticed that there tends to be a lot more anxiety, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that some of the anxiety seems to represent a sign of the times as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that I've mentioned once or twice to a few different people that I've seen that recently um, I seem to have seen more people with a worry about being cancelled um yes, than, yeah yeah there was before yeah and um it seemed to be prevalent in younger people where yeah. they might be doing their law degree their medicine degree and they worry about this idea that they'll pass the course and then in 30 years time something will come out on social media that's totally appropriate for right now but say like a photo of them buying a, a woman a drink at the bar yeah. what yeah. if down the line that falls under the remit of harassment for example yes. they yeah. get cancelled so it's i guess it can be a big sign of the times you know society really has a big yeah. impact on the sense okay. we make of the world so do you know what i'm thinking to see if there's anyone listening that might not kind of understand the term cancelled what we're kind of talking about is that you know in social media people have a public presence you can be kind of publicly vilified can't you for behaviors that you've done recently or even many many years back and actually that's made me think that's a really interesting point actually Stuart isn't it is that then how long are people worrying about this is this something they're dealing with this anxiety on a daily basis for the next 10 20 30 years of their career and how might that that's a really good question how might anxiety get in the way of you leading a value-laden life. So psychologists, we like to talk about behaviours. So when we have anxious thoughts and there may be physiological symptoms that show up with that, big emotions, how might that impact our behaviour? And how might that get in the way of the kind of life we want to lead, the things that matter? Yeah, well, we do, um, I mean, we do function quite a lot on patterns and yes, within patterns, yeah. thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, rules that we have, those all guide our behavior as well, really right? you know, do, values, yeah. like you mentioned. Um, if we have a, a belief or value about, you know, money is important, then we maybe we're more likely to have a different relationship to money from someone who, yeah. you know, values um, freedom, for example. Yeah. Um, I suppose the problem is that if our most primitive and most important value is survival, then it's going to shape our behavior in a way yes. that's going to make us take fewer chances. It's going to make us avoid doing things. It's going to make us a little bit more apprehensive or a little yes. bit more worried. Yeah. And 
make us dwell and um, worry more about things that sometimes we maybe don't have to worry about. Yeah. Because one of the things that comes up quite a lot with my patients and, and some of the other projects that I work on is that actually it can be quite exhausting worrying. So sometimes people, say people just think about the fact it takes up time, but it can have quite an impact on you, can't it? Mm, absolutely, yeah. Because I guess what we've got to remember, if you put a brain under a PET scanner, um, hopefully that brain is still inside a human skull. But if we put <laughs> that inside a PET scanner, which measures the blood flow and therefore measures where the actual blood is being used where the energy is being used when people are thinking you know not even just worrying when people are thinking certain areas of the brain light up now if we look at what worry is which is basically thinking but thinking over and over and over and over yes then that brain is going to be lighting up and what that means is that our brain's actually using energy you know it's a burning adenosine triphosphate which is the energy source and so Quite often people will say, oh, I can't help it. I'm a worrier. But what you've got to think about is your default state is not to be burning that energy. Your default state is to be resting it. So you are actually burning energy by worrying. A bit like if you decide to go on a treadmill, you're burning energy on that treadmill. You know, it's not that it's happening by itself. So even, and the reason I say that is just because even when we feel out of control of worrying or we feel we can't control our thoughts, you know, if you're not in control of it, then who is? I guess that's the, that's the good question. Yes. And sometimes we try and get more control. So sometimes people will purposefully sit down, won't they? Right, if I can try and work through this thing or behaviourally, if I can try and control everything yeah. that's leading to my anxious thoughts. And, and again, coming back to energy then is um, just the role of constantly worrying and how much mm-hmm. fatigue that takes, how much energy is put you know, physically, emotionally into avoiding or using safety behaviors we sometimes talk about in psychology that's where you know if you can't avoid a situation and you've got to be in it you might use some safety behaviors like I'll have a little drink before I have to go to this social event you know I'll sit at the back of the room and put my head down and hope that no one talks to me at this conference that I've got to go to otherwise I'll lose my job for example Um, is that it can actually impact other areas of mental health as well we were going to just touch on weren't we you know that relationship perhaps between anxiety and depression for example that when Mm. people are constantly worrying constantly putting this effort into avoiding and safety behaviors how that might affect your mood your motivation your outlook in life yeah well that's it isn't it because the problem with safety behaviors is that they work and that, that's the problem with them. We go, you know? yes, that worked. I've got yeah. to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes sense. Like, if, you know, if I don't like, um, you know, if I don't like a certain person, it makes sense to avoid them. But the problem with that is that when we start relying on safety behaviors or a certain safety behavior over and over, or when we yeah. start using that safety behavior in a situation that doesn't get us like the best outcome for what we want to achieve in life, that's when it becomes a problem. And like we say, like our basic human or animal instincts even is to survive. And if we do that by constantly avoiding, there's not just that we're missing out on pleasure and opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. It's also the message, the the um, the implication that we're giving ourselves. The yeah. I can't cope with that implication. We might not say that to ourselves physically yeah. or even mentally. Yeah. But that's the assumption, isn't it? We see all these other people doing stuff and we kind of know 
we're not doing it. We can't do it. I'm too scared to do it. Yeah. And then again, the message we get from that, I'm less than other people. And we end up in this spiral. It's often described in CBT as a cycle, isn't it? But I often describe it more as a spiral because the more times you go around it, the deeper it goes. Absolutely. I think that's quite a powerful visual as well, isn't it? Yeah. And so it's not really surprising that the research shows that if you have trouble with anxiety, then depression often Yes. Is, is is close behind it. Yes. And yeah. the reason that I specialize in depression, anxiety, and sleep disorders is because they form like a triangle or a three-legged stool. Yes. Right? Yeah. Where if you have trouble with one, chances are you have trouble with another. And if you have cha- problems with two, then the third is probably just around the corner. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there is a very strong link between depression and anxiety. And whichever comes first, whether it's anxiety leading to um, depression because of not having pleasure in life because of the yeah. anxiety, or whether it's depression leading to anxiety because we have this very um, this suppressed lifestyle that we start to worry about things. Our comfort zone shrinks, and all of a sudden the stuff we used to do is no longer easy. It becomes a source of fear rather than something that we used to thrive doing. So it's interesting you mentioned in the triad because we brought this up, didn't we, in the very first series in your episode on sleep. And I think it's important to also bring in here then the sleep element. And you did a fantastic episode for us on sleep. Um, And we wouldn't do it justice without now bringing in anxiety and how anxiety may impact sleep. Yeah, absolutely. and vice versa. Yeah, well, we we know they are very closely related, so there tends to be a pattern. Um, I can't remember if we talked about this on the previous podcast, um, but there tends to be generally a pattern that if you're having trouble falling asleep, it's often anxiety related. If yeah. you find yourself waking up early, it tends to be more depression related. Right, that's good for people to know. Yeah, and um, the reason that. Um, trouble falling asleep tends to be anxiety related is because one of the mechanisms of anxiety which you touched on earlier about worry or dwelling yeah, yeah. It, it tends to be something that like we discussed activates the brain and releases yes. some of that adrenaline releases some of that cortisol yes and those are things which make it difficult to sleep it's this idea about mice wouldn't sleep if they thought there were dogs uh, sorry if they thought there were cats nearby we had that Um, we had that in yet yeah and there doesn't have to be cats nearby but if they thought there were cats nearby they wouldn't sleep so it's not always based on what's going on for us it can be based on again these stories these ideas these thoughts that we have if we think we're gonna get fired in the morning we might not be gonna but if we think we are that's gonna give us a sleepless night and um similarly when we have trouble with our sleep, that becomes a bit of a cycle because we become less able to regulate our emotions as effectively. And I'm sure everyone's experienced a bad night's sleep. You know, just because I'm a sleep doctor, it doesn't mean that I haven't either. Um, But we do everything. The next day when we're tired, everything is a stupid question, isn't it? We're less tolerant of people. Absolutely. Yes. You know, we find it harder to deal with stuff. Things feel more overwhelming. Yeah. And that is because, you know, sleep is one of those things that helps clear out our mental clutter, 
yes. and yeah. prepare us for the next day. So when that gets disrupted or dysregulated, we get into a bit of a cycle that makes the anxiety worse, but also our sleep worse. And there is actually quite a growing body of research now that shows that you can improve people's sleep without doing any therapy at all for the anxiety and it'll improve their anxiety. So interesting because I know you've spoken about this before on other platforms and I find that really really interesting for the public to know Mm. you know that because that's going to be one of the kind of questions that if you are noticing then issues with anxiety whether you're listening to this and you have a long-standing relationship with anxiety or something that's newer is the where do people start I know there's no magic solution you need to do xyz but just where's a good starting point for people then just starting to think about their sleep but how to start to think about addressing their anxiety understanding more about it yeah it's a great question isn't it and um, I'm sure for yourself and probably every therapist out there um, there isn't a kind of one-stop solution it, yeah. it's based on everyone's situation. For some people, it's about working on the anxiety. For some people, it's about working on the sleep. For some people, it's working on the physiology because this yes. is something that's yeah. often neglected, isn't it? Like, it really is, yeah. 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 We think about let's sit in a chair and just talk about our thoughts and yes. feelings. Yeah. But our physiology, if we look at our postures day to day, and I know Amy Cuddy's done, at Harvard Uni's done some amazing research with this, where certain postures release different chemicals in the body. Wow, yeah. Um, you know, like three minutes of what she calls power posing, which is that kind of typical standing with your hands on your hips, chest out. Yes. You know, when she did the um, saliva swabs, there was an increase in testosterone in those people. Gosh. So the way we posture ourselves makes a huge, huge difference if we're if we're like in a depressed posture or an anxious posture, you know, getting control of our breathing can make a big difference. Yes. I yeah. think what's important though is that when we think about that connection between thoughts, feelings, behavior, and our physical responses, it's important that people start somewhere. Yeah. You know, starting yeah. anywhere is better than spending hours dwelling or looking for the optimal. Yes program or the optimal place to start um, i often use a gym analogy that um if someone's a beginner just doing any workout program even stepping into the gym and lifting a weight will get them a result yeah. the person looking on the internet for the optimal gym program and going yeah. from one to yep. another before they step into the gym they're not going to get any results just starting anywhere is a good place to start. Quite a compassionate stance, that, isn't it? Because I'm wondering if you know, people listening that maybe have a long-standing relationship with anxiety may have had experiences before where they've tried to deal with it and they might not have worked out or anxiety may have suddenly become more intense again, more frequent. Um, it's just that being kind and actually, you know, just that first small step and what could that look like so obviously people might be thinking about therapy counseling for example is there anything else that people can consider that might look like a first step for dealing with anxiety yeah I think that's a great question it's a huge question isn't it I think the first step well I think there's quite a lot of different first steps that could be taken I mean obviously if it is related to a genuine problem then if we're able to solve that problem yeah yeah that's the so it's that formulation isn't it yeah, exactly. I mean, whether we're able to fix that problem or not, though, a bit of self-compassion never goes in the wrong place. 
Um, there are lots of meditations on the internet, compassion yes. meditations. Yeah. Gratitude yeah. is something that I've gotten into very recently and um, I think is absolutely amazing. Um, it's hard to feel fear and gratitude at the same time. Yes, yeah. And um, I think certain... If you're more into the physical side, then breathing techniques are a great thing. I think one thing that's really helpful, no matter who you are or what the problem is, is becoming aware of what your patterns are. Yes, that's a really good point. You know, how we tend to respond to things. And again, that's not necessarily with behavior. It can be when this happens, I tend to start thinking X. Or when this happens, I start to do Y or I notice Z in my body. Yes. And when yeah. we do that, we're sometimes able to say to ourselves, oh, right, actually, yeah, I'm noticing that pattern. Hang on, I'm, I'm, I, this is the precursor to anxiety. And, and I always say to people, yes. you know, kill the monster before it becomes a monster. Kill the monster when it's a baby lizard. Don't wait for until like it's Godzilla yes. tearing down your city and smashing the place up. I, I often say to people, 90 second rule 90 seconds if, to notice whatever state you're in and then to change it because after that uh, chances are it's going to start spiraling and growing into that godzilla like monster deal with Trying it early. Ca- yes yeah that kind of is i think what's really lovely there is that you know that comes back to what we're saying about taking some time to kind of educate yourself around what anxiety is but then how it shows up for you i sometimes like and i don't know where i got that from but that idea of an anxiety footprint that we all have feet and toes and our footprints might look similar in the sand but no one will be yours in it yours is very personal to you and taking that time to sit and understand what your in psychology we use the term formulation is or as you say how does it show up for you um and sometimes that could be hard because we've got to sit and notice stuff and for some of us we've been trying to keep it at bay um for so long but that's a really good first step and obviously in the kind of current climate you know waiting lists for therapy free therapy getting access being able to have the means to pay for it that's not accessible for everyone um and it's what's really useful is to look at other ways that people can also begin to manage anxiety and i really like there's a lot of free things out there on youtube particularly now a lot of um psychologists and people who put a lot of free content out there that's accessible for you but i really like the fact as well it's a bit person sensitive that isn't it looking at well what might work for me actually i need something more physical to start off with so maybe breathing exercises are, are better for me um in terms of kind of sleep are there any extra so people who might not have listened we're going to refer them back to your to your sleep episode anything around sleep that can be useful as a starting point to help people look more at their patterns and yeah i think I think there's a few things that you know, we kind of only scratched the surface on with the last conversation. Yeah, because I we're think... doing a series on sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying you need to start a sleep podcast up. That would be amazing. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. It's just like, I mean, sleep, it's one of those things where people don't really acknowledge that they have a sleep problem or yes, open yeah. up about it until you ask yeah. them, "Do you, how was your sleep? Yeah, um, yeah, you know, that's a good um, point. We live in a society where it's almost accepted as having a sleep problem or even a badge of honor. You know, sometimes I get um, calls from people, entrepreneurs like, oh, I heard that Einstein only has four hours sleep. I, I, yes. I want to do that. 
Yeah. And it, it's like, so they're so really actually asking for that. Yeah, wow. yeah. And, and also as well, it's not true. Uh, sorry, not Einstein. It was Edison. Um, um, but yeah, it was like, you know, he used to nap throughout the day as well. But obviously that's not as romantic as the idea. Yes. And optimise your performance would just fall out yes. sleep. Um, yeah. But when it comes to anxiety as well, I mean, with sleep, I mean, in the context of anxiety, especially the first thing, and in line with what we've been saying, is decatastrophizing it. Yes. Yeah. You know, everyone has trouble with their sleep at some point, and there is a lot of stuff out there that that you know, there's a lot of scare out there about if you don't sleep, then you're going to develop dementia, you're going to develop heart problems. Yes. And a lot of these studies, they're what we would call correlational, where you don't know which direction the relationship is. You know, it's often a, that people with dementia sleep less and then obviously it becomes a soundbite on TikTok yeah. or on YouTube. And That's then, exactly it now. We're in a yeah. slightly new age, aren't we, then, for where information goes and how many people see it. Exactly. And um, I think when it comes to sleep, decatastrophizing it is not only something that's going to help the anxiety but also help your sleep. You know, a difference between a good sleeper and a bad sleeper is a bad sleeper starts worrying about it. A good sleeper just says, huh, didn't sleep very well last night. I'm sure I will tonight. That's and a good way of thinking get on about with it. it. Yes, yeah. So then that role of perhaps procrastinating, worrying about it, worrying about what, I think we covered this before. Oh, no, maybe I should go to bed earlier tonight, try and catch up all of those myths. But actually, that can be more of a problem in itself, can't it? The kind of worry about the next night and the next night and, and is it yeah, it's kind of that term doom scrolling with the internet is there such a thing as kind of doom thinking with sleep that now my sleep i'm i'm going to be someone who doesn't sleep you know we can catastrophize sometimes can't we or start fast forwarding into what's going to be without yeah. bringing ourselves back to the present and i think if we know those patterns if we know our patterns and we have a pattern to start worrying about stuff yes if it's related to our health, for example, we're able to say, oh, hang on a minute, I'm just doing that thing that I do. I'm just getting into that pattern, but it's on my, yes. focusing on my sleep instead of my health or instead of, you know, what people think of me. I'm, I'm just getting into yes. that thing. Because we, we do tend to get hooked into the same processes. It's like for one person, their pattern might be that their body becomes tense when they yes. feel anxious. For another, their pattern might be, that they start to go over and over the past or they start to go over and over what might happen. And if we realise, oh, hang on, I'm doing that with my sleep. I'm, I'm just slipping into that pattern. You know, maybe there isn't a genuine threat out there. Maybe there isn't a real danger out there. Maybe I am safe. It's just yes. my brain is slipping into that pattern. How could I exit this pattern? You know, what would be a helpful thing to do? And I always draw that distinction. I also draw a distinction between what do I want to do and what would be helpful to do, because quite often they're not the same thing. Very often good point. we want yes. to think about it more because we might come up with a solution, but the, often the helpful thing is to be able to say, hang on a minute, I've, I've, I do this all the time and it just leads to me getting more anxious. What would be... What would be a way of unhooking from this that would actually move me towards a better quality yes. of life? You I was going to oh, say that sounds very act-based. Yes, yeah. 
that yeah. notice and name, that ability to just take a moment to go, what's going on here before we get stuck in the doing? And it can be hard once you've kind of educated yourself and help yourself become a little bit more orientated in the moment. We're, mm. we're very good, aren't we, at going straight from what we notice to doing and, and, and not creating what I call that daylight in between to be able to go, hang on, what is this? It's, it's a very kind of neutral stance. Hey, what is this? This is a pattern here. What's happening here? And it kind of removes any blame and judgment as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would also argue as well, because like, um, a, a thing that people often say is that um, that, they're, that they're not negative, they're realistic. They think realistically. Yes. But when we think about thinking realistically, this, you know, if that is you, if you are a person who does think realistically and thinks objectively, you have the patterns. We all, because we all have patterns. And realistically, if we're able to look at, well, right, well, what is my pattern? Then it, it's still it's still acting on that mindset. It is still, right, I'm still being true to myself. I'm still thinking realistically. I'm still thinking objectively. Yes. It's just I'm shifting my focus away from, well, what could happen or what is going to go on to, oh, hang on a minute, this is that thing that I do. This is that dwelling pattern I get into. How has it worked out for me in the past? What would be a more helpful pattern? There's quite a lot of power there, isn't there? You I know, in that so. being able to notice, taking the wind out of the sails of anxiety, I sometimes say, we're just reducing the power, taking that power button and just turning it down just a little bit. Um, it can be quite reinforcing then when you start to notice a bit of change. And I've certainly had patients who've gone, oh, I can notice now. I'm asking myself questions, creating that daylight. I can, you know, I always say to them, just look on the clock, count the seconds between the thought and what you're doing. You know, really get present in monitoring that daylight, that tunnel, um, and make it longer and longer and longer. We could probably talk all day. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> I'm going to get you to get your podcast series out on sleep all, all benefit from that immensely we've had so many nuggets but my little signature move if there was one little adversity takeaway and anxiety what would it be um just one okay um <laughs> one little nugget on top of the hundreds we've had already i think for me it would come down if i think about when i'm working with clients the one principle whatever the techniques are whatever the direction is the one principle that it always seems to come back down to is decatastrophizing. Yes. One word, just decatastrophizing. However you do that, whether that is solving the problem, whether that is noticing your pattern, mm -hmm. whether that is um, you know, deciding to worry less, whether it's moving your body in a different way, putting your body in a more confident, open posture. I think... The real one principle with anxiety is about decatastrophizing. Yes. Yeah. And if we become good at doing that, then we're able to deal with anything. What a perfect thing to leave us with. So if people haven't listened to you already, where can they find you? Where do you hang out? How can people find out more about you? Okay, so um, our service, we're based in Newcastle upon Tyne, though we do have a really thriving online service. Um, Fantastic. We were actually working online quite a lot before COVID even. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're fully equipped for working with people online. And 
Um, our website is newcastlepsychologist.co.uk and um, Newcastle Psychologist, it's not just me. We have a team of therapists who all specialise in a range of different problems. And, you know, obviously we have different therapists who will be able to help with, you know, whatever struggles you might have. And um, quite often I'm able to be found um, on the podcast circuit like like this one. <laughs> um, but certainly if anything's resonated today, then you can drop us a message through the website and certainly we'll be happy to help in any way we can. You also like to hang out on LinkedIn as well, don't you? So I'll make that sure is I put true. that. That's true. I'm on LinkedIn, yep. And um, I will reply. Anyone who sends me a message, I might be opening the floodgates here, but um, anyone <laughs> who does reply, I, I do always reply back. And what I think is really lovely for people as well is you do quite a lot of little blogs and articles for people as well, really accessible things, um, which I think is something useful for people to know as well. Um, Stuart, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm going to think about how I get you back again. We need to do one on depression then, don't we? We've got to complete that, that triad, haven't we? <laughs> Um, we've had an episode on supporting someone with depression, but I haven't covered depression in itself yet, which is surprising actually for, for four series. I've just had other, other things that have come my way. So if you're happy to, I'll get you to sit on air and then you will do come back at a later date and we'll talk about depression and finish that triad. So thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Tara. And um, it's, thank, you for, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you step at a time.